peace, namaste, and shalom. Everybody out there in dreamland, I am the beyond top secret Texan. Join me on my podcast, the Beyond Top Secret Texan podcast, where I explore the outer limits of human abilities, top secret military technologies, the reality of extraterrestrial Earth alliances, secret space wars, advanced cryptozoology, subjects of theosophic truth, esotericism, and the occult. Beyond the Top Secret Texan Podcast. Extrapolating ignorance. Profane humans generally receive passive faith-based indoctrination only. They are not expected to actively examine or interrogate such indoctrination. Indeed, are usually reprimanded or punished if presuming to do so. Accordingly, they assume themselves to be defined, manifested by their physical bodies and senses. If they think about death, which most avoid doing as much as possible. They imagine only the blind fear of the BBS, the big black sack. Thus they are easy prey for profane religions. Cruelly and cynically, the result is a dance macabre of the blind leading the blind through a maze of mystical nonsense. Alternately, promising posthumous reward for obedience and threatening eternal punishment otherwise. Not only do such religions have no actual power or authority to decree such fates, but their private and public documents make it clear that they have not the slightest idea about actual afterlife or even how to discover it. Nor all the more remarkably considering these destinations ostensible all importance do they even seem to care. The amount of profane religious writings on postcarnet existence is almost non-existent. Abandoning even speculation to such secular visionaries such as John Milton, Dante Alighieri, and William Blake. The Procrustean Prescription In ancient Greek mythology, Procrustes was an ancient, insane ironsmith from Attica who prided himself on creating an iron bed that would fit everyone he kidnapped. If they were too short, the bed functioned as a torture rack to stretch them out. If they were too tall, he'd cut off the excess from their legs and feet. Profane religion professes to know the why. Answers that outside universe science 
adamantly refuses to address. Why do individual humans exist as conscious entities? Is life the greatest of all divine gifts and blessings? Or is it a sadistic joke? Decades of affliction, fear, and toil relieved only by its ripping away unexpectedly and amidst pain, exhaustion, degradation. Followed by the even grimmer prospect of endless torture with only an eye of the needle chance for some vague bliss instead. Are humans even given the option to embark upon this journey? No. Can they abandon it if it is unendurable? No. Suicide is held by all profane religions to not just be a sin, but the uttermost heinous of all sins. If they struggle through their forced lives, obeying every religious edict as best they can, can they thereby expect heaven instead of hell? Most certainly not. Humans can never escape their own original sin if they are Jews. All are destined for the same posthumous nightmare. And if Christians, they can still not save themselves no matter how devout they are. Only the whim of Jesus Christ can purify them. And if the New Testament is any guide, he is just as likely to bless a whore as a virgin. Perhaps more so. So welcome to the bedroom of Procrustes. You are placed on earth with a guilty sentence hanging like an immaculate albatross from your neck. You now face perhaps 80 years of every possible physical ordeal before you, which brief interludes of happiness only highlighting as all the more reoccurring and relentless. You have nothing to look forward to but a painful, terrifying death row at an unknown moment. And this was the pleasant part. Now, if you are Jewish, you are condemned to an eternity of desolation in Sheol. And if you are a Christian or Muslim, a far greater likelihood of eternal hideous torment and torture in hell. Then, admission to heaven on the mere whim of Jesus or the prophet Muhammad. Expect to escape this doom as a Hindu or a Buddhist? Sure, you get to stay right here. If you've been normally flawed human though, expect to come back as a centipede or a rat. Isn't it a relief to know that all of the above is nothing more than cruel, cold-blooded enslavement and lies. Three, sometimes they come back. Reincarnation. The centipede rat scenario mentioned above began as a Buddhist and Hindu idea because they do not posit the Judeo-Christian Sheol, heaven and hell repository so needed to think of something else to do with expiring souls. It seemed simplest just to recycle them, with the profane control threat being the provision for slippage down the organismarchy, or, sorry, the organismarchy, 
if you were uncooperative with this carnation. As examined in more detail in Illuminex, this Hindu-Buddhist invention was later borrowed by some profane Western initiatory groups as something more occult than the old, depressing, inevitable Sheol Hell Hell, I don't know, I guess Sheol Hell Jihenna. And exciting because unlike conventional Judeo-Christianity, such an initiate could self-redeem beforehand, guaranteeing either a ticket to heaven or at least a promotion for the next reincarnation. How could this be accomplished? In the 13th century, Jews and uncertain Christians were offered a new hope for non-messianic redemption from both Adam and Eve's original and their own additional sins. The Spanish Jew Moses de Leon authored a series of books, The Zohar, Splendor, claiming to reveal divine mysteries concealed in the Torah. The mysticism contained in the Zohar is known as the Kabbalah. The word means aligned or corresponding and purported to chart an initiatory pathway to redemption by personal effort alone. Standard Buddhist Hindu reincarnation as prima facie nonsense, with the occasional exception of a few Napoleons and Cleopatras in sanatoriums, newborns have not appeared with old memories. And of course, neither Gautama nor Vishnu set up an equivalency of old and new bodies. Nor in the BH model, the Buddhist Hindu model, would it make sense to eradicate one's previous personality, memory, or accumulated knowledge with a physical reincarnation. This would make the entire operation pointless, since the reincarnate would complete, be completely new and unique from any perspective guilt on the last carnation. Punishment or promotion would be equally pointless. Some pop occult fantasies notwithstanding, Egyptian metaphysics included absolutely no concept of physical reincarnation. The Buddhist Hindu model of identity restart would amount to sacrilegious murder of the reanimation of the mind star, an inconceivable blasphemy. As detailed herein, the entire curriculum of Egyptian initiation involved extension and exercise of the body and its senses to enable identification and realization of the eight mind star emanations, followed which the body is discarded and the mind star embarked upon its neater immortality. So while bodified, you're not expected to cringe before religious threats of punishment or equally empty promises of earthly rewards. As the Egyptians represent by the symbolism of Mott and their disciple Plato by his concept of the Agathon. Your desire to be and do the good is yet another anamnesis, an innate nobility of your mind star which you have only to acknowledge and actualize. The highest good for its own sake. Resurrection. Death examines the rather repulsive and grisly superstitions of Judeo-Christians relating to dead bodies in which human souls were either permanently imprisoned or reinserted by God Jesus during the second coming. 
Similarly, Hebrews had no concept of the soul, beyond a mere animal animating force, called the nefesh, of which only reviled and feared elementals, the Elohim and Raphaim, remained within the corpse. The early Christians erroneously mistook the Greek psyche for the Hebrew nefesh, insisting that although sundered at death, it would soon reunite with its body. And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. The immediate, if short-lived, resurrection of Jesus post-crucifixion was held to exemplify this concept. And as they thus spake, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them, and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. But they were terrified and affrighted, and supposed that they had seen a spirit. And he said unto them, Why are ye troubled? And why do ye thoughts arise in your heart? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me, and see. For a spirit hath not flesh and bones, as ye see me have. And when he had thus spoken, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they yet believed not for joy, and wondered, he said unto them, Have ye here any meat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and of a honeycomb. And he took it, and did eat before them. However dramatic this Easter fable, it is no significance beyond that, not just for the obvious reason, that Jesus did not permanently revive, but more than some theoretical future of the night of the living dead would seriously overcrowd earth with reanimates, utterly adrift from their original times. It is difficult to imagine how any such Christian fan, uh, final, uh, finale could be anything but a worldwide disaster. Necromancy Ritual summoning of the departed has been an interest of ceremonial magicians, mediums, scientists, and scientists since antiquity. Most of this can be written off to the superstitious, delusional, or fraudulent. And if thought is indeed a filled phenomenon and the mind star is immortal, there is no reason to assume that communication of the ESP type is impossible. While a full inquiry into this would require its own book, here it may be noted that the seemingly fanciful trappings of the ritual chamber, seance parlors, and the expressionistic mad laboratories should not be dismissed too quickly or contemptuously. As discussed in Mind War, deliberate concentration and energizing of both conscious and subconscious thought requires reinforcement by and non-distraction of the body's physical senses. This can be either by minimizing them as in yoga meditation or Dr. John Lilly's sensory deprivation tanks or in the selection, construction, decoration of enhancing externalities. Beyond its range of physical senses, the human body can both detect and react to a wide range of waves and fields within and possible beyond the electromagnetic spectrum. Many of these EMS functions are detailed as psychological controls, known as psychons, in Mind War. Dr. Lilly's tanks did not specifically identify or reduce these. But what would have been needed was for the tank to be surrounded by a Faraday cage. Indeed, one enhanced to nullify all external stimuli. 
zombification, the reanimation of dead human bodies minus the soul, either personality, intelligence, or consciousness of the once person has assuredly been grist and gore for horror from Haiti to Hollywood. In his The Serpent and the Rainbow, Wade E. Davis, Ph.D. Ethnobotany, exposed the Haitian practice as the controlled use of poisons. As for the modern zombie apocalypse reverie, there is more than a passing allusion to the worrisome opiate epidemic, combined with the alarming dumbing down of an undereducated populace. Still, this hasn't yet advanced to mass mob cannibalistic extremes. While it is obvious to even the minimally intelligent, the Great Pyramid of Giza was never anyone's tomb. Its true purpose has remained elusive, not the least because of an odd interior architecture, dimensions, baffles, sinks, and angularities. Perhaps I speak too fast. Posthumous pageantry. Deaths of their slaves, and particularly the more prominent ones, are believed by profane religions for the spectacles they invite, both immediately and sometimes annually thereafter, or even daily, as in the case of the famous woman in black, visiting Rudolf Valentino's crypt. As with the event of death itself, the common feature of all such profane necrofestivals is completely disinterest in the current state of the deceased. There is never any concern or conversation about whether the individual is in heaven or hell, how to congratulate the former or commiserate the latter. With the possible exception of Elvis Presley, no time is spent searching for reincarnations either. But even after several samplings of Thriller, the author remains uncertain whether Michael Jackson was indeed then subsequently zombified. And some personages, such as James Dean, Princess Diana, Jim Morrison, and Adolf Hitler, mesmerized the masses far more as avatars than as actual people. On the other hand, perhaps Morrison already was one. Monolithic Anamnesis to understand physical death accurately, it is first necessary to dispel the notion that physical death is an utter and final end. The proverbial big black sack, a propaganda of the profane, in actuality it is nothing of the sort, but a consciousness evolutionary process which is easily realizable and identifiable once one knows and where and how to look for it. As so much else in Mindstar, this is a practical personal exercise and anamnesis, recollective noetic knowledge of primal truth, a neater or platonic form. Once alerted to anamnesis and upon exercising the requisite, the requisite dialectic thought discipline to attain it, it is usually it is a utility and veracity which will definitively and reliably self-evident. While amnesis may be activated by simple prompting, as illustrated by Plato's dialogue, the Mino, it can also be utilized in extensive and elaborate explorations, as illustrated in The Sphinx and Chimera. For a convenient metaphor to illustrate the death, 
transitional sequence, we need look no further than the classic science fiction movie 2001 A Space Odyssey. As you apply anamnesis to this, it, its actuality will replace the big black sack falsity, freeing you from enslavement to the hopelessness and despair of death. Do not read 2001 A Space Odyssey as nostalgic entertainment. It is an exercise to replace the prevalent preconditioned mental model of death as big black sack obliteration with a schematic of continuity and evolutionary transition of life. In his collaboration, director Stanley Kubrick and author C. Clarke were not too far off when, at the culmination of the film, the transitioned mind star of astronauts David Bowman was represented as an embryonic star child. As he awakened, wrote Clark, he wasn't sure what he was going to do next, but he knew he would think of something. 2001 starred a flat black golden rectangular monolith with the missing link power to catalyze successive stages of human consciousness and evolution. From instinctive animal all the way to homo sapiens in prehistory, then from the intelligent incarnation to pure mentality, star child, activated once man had advanced sufficiently to reach the moon and encounter a sentinel monolith. The prehistoric and moon monoliths were followed by a third floating one in space near the Jovian moon Europa. Bowman transition trip through space and time occurs in two stages. First, his 3D-defined body is subjected to a series of extreme physical forces to destroy its objective universe physical displacement. The metamorphic Bowman then finds himself in a subjective universal SU hotel suite in which he is suspended while his Objective Universe 4D form accelerates to match the disintegrated 3D of its previous life, as illustrated by a hyper-compressed aging process. The outside universe 4D vacated Bowman now re-enters the monolith to complete his transition to a third wholly mental stage of evolution theatrically portrayed as the star child. In Egyptian symbolism, Bowman's mind star has a golden rectangle, is a rectangle that can be cut up into a square and a rectangle similar to the original one. All golden rectangles are similar and the ratio length width equals golden ratio equals 1 plus square root of 5 divided by 2 is held by the universal standard of beauty in proportion. This is cast aside as it's caught 
outside universe 4D incarnation to reconstitute itself on a call basis. Not being initiates or symbolists, neither Kubrick nor Clark found the imagery or language to be this specific. What audiences see is therefore their noetic sensation of this process, an artistic act of anamnesis. It is the same anamnesis in 2001 which impresses them with a subconscious sense of the intrinsic correctness, the validity of this film sequence without being able to put it all into words. Stanley Kubrick was an avowed atheist who, having illustrated Next Stage Evolution, felt no need to define it. It famously for completely differentiating in his films, he simply went on to a clockwork orange, then full metal jacket, But Arthur C. Clarke was less sanguine about the door he'd cracked open. Popularly regarded as one of the big three moderns of science fiction, he had to stand up against the other two, atheist Asimov and Robert Heinlein. The unspoken ethic was that any hint of supernaturalism in their stories would taint their science, taking them down to a stage to fantasy. The most of that, Clark permitted himself in interviews with a deistic shrug that God might have created the objective universe, but if so, paid no further attention to it. Obviously, Clark was left floundering what to do with his 2001 star child. In 1982, he finally came up with the sequel 2010 Odyssey 2, in which an inexplicably re-outside universe 4D David Bowman, a resurrected, yeah, David Bowman, chats with his wife on television, materializes on Earth to visit his mother, and then bequeaths the entire solar system to humanity as long as it stays away from Europa, for which no reason is ever given. To emphasize this, Dave changes Jupiter into a second sun for the system, doubtless precipitating both gravitational and radiational catastrophes for all the remaining planets. Perhaps unsurprisingly, Arthur did not stick around to watch this happen. He went through his own monolith two years earlier, in 2008. With the perspective of initiation, we can do a bit better than Kubrick or Clark as to what's beyond the third monolith. Nieder Zertat Having rejected the big black sack of atheism, agnosticism, as well as its tacit but camouflaged acceptance by profane religions, the obvious question remains. If upon disassociation from a physical human body, where does the mind star go? Go is in quotes because the mind star 
isn't a 4D objective universe displacement that is either stationary or mobile against objective universe points of reference. It is of metaphysical, not physical, constitution and integrity, like the Nidoru, and can be accurately conceived and understood only upon this realization and in this context. It turns out there is yet another one of those, you know what's down there in a swamp, but so what? Human brains, conditioned to work there with their physical senses, alone with a custom to regard the objective universe, the perceptive extent of those senses as the whole of reality. These are same physical senses, but almost, but not completely useless, where reality beyond the objective universe is concerned. The key to that capacity lies in the mind's capacity for intuition. This has nothing to do with the commonplace use of this term for guesswork or hunches. and Rather, it constitutes the capacity of thought exclusive for all objective universe sensory receptions and their accumulated reality patterns. This is the intuition described by Plato as Gnosis. As illustrated by the structure of Platonic dialogues, Gnosis is attainable only after an individual has recognized and freed themselves from a pyramid of lesser objective universe referential thinkings, a thought purification process called by Plato the dialectic. In the dialogues, it is illustrated by conversation in order to render it intelligible in words, but the process itself is purely mental. Experienced initiates can't activate gnosis by reflective thinking alone, turning the mind in upon itself. The term meditation most closely characterizes this, although again the term has been popularized, corrupted in various recreational expressions. Accordingly, there is no physical in the precise sense of that term place, wherein the Nidaru and each individual mind star dwell, such as a third eye. For conversational convenience, only the Egyptians identified it as the Nidar Zertat, the place of the Nidaru. In conventional Egyptology, it is frequently confused with the Tuat, the underworld, are the Amentai, the afterworld, simply because of the accepted portrayal of Egyptian souls and mythology as a Hebraic style of God, subject, life, afterlife, etc. The heaven and hell journey and repository system as symbolism reveals, the multiple aspects of the mind star were not re-imprisoned in a post-mortem body and dragged before a Hebrew godly Osiris to be judged and consigned to a heavenly Aminti or hellish Tuat. The Nidaru was utterly unconcerned with pre-mortem human mortality. Weighing of one's heart against a feather represented each mind star's transition from the objective universe referential morality, symbolized by the ab or heart emanation, to pure abstract nitor mortality as symbolized by Mott's 42 laws. 
expect your eventual awakening or entry, if that is easier to conceptualize, to Nietzsche Zertat to be a wondrous unfolding of possibilities, limited only by your own coherence, creativity, and inner courage. This destination is the same for every conscious entity. For they all have mind stars. The only difference is with the Gnosis you anticipate and plan for it. If you've died expecting nothing but the terror and obliteration of non-initiations, Big Black Sack, it's going to take you a while to get over your surprise, relief, and wonder. A meta-rebirth not altogether unlike your previous, more constrained, incarnate ones. The Two Paths The initiatory journey to Nietzsche Zertat is by one of two paths. The right hand, right hand path, and left hand path. The Egyptians represented these respectively in symbolism as Harwer. The right hand path. A mind star which was chosen, the right hand path, emerges in willful synchronicity with the natural Nidaru, enjoying the rich harmony of their collective natural law. In this environment, the mind star is no longer to be set by the tensions of incarnate tension between a self-affirmative conscious envelope, but by far the most initiated mind stars arrive via the right-hand path and enjoy this experience of Nieder Zertat as a participant rather than a creator Nitaru. Such Harmony is the transitional emergence of non-initiate mind stars. The difference being that, a bit like 2001 Star Child, they don't anticipate it and will need to gradually discard their big black sack terror and our profane religion's afterlife mythologies. But relief and harmonious consciousness will gently and comfortably arise without sacrifice of individuality. While neither violating nor wishing to violate natural law, the right-hand path mind star may freely observe and move about in the universe, indeed to the extent of subtle interaction as the Kabat, with still incarnate beings. Such interaction is sensed by the incarnate as both conscious and subconscious levels of thought, the former as dreams and the latter as extrasensory perceptions, ESP, and the precise incidence of impressions not utilizing the body's physical senses, such as thought-filled phenomenon, are the sixth sense. Such ESP awareness and communication occurs through the Kabat emanation of one or more mind stars and is shadowed in the physical brain by the incarnate by theta wave activity. It is the Kabat that both causes and is sensitive to disturbances known as ghosts and haunted houses, which also explain why such sensitivity is more developed in some incarnates than others. The left-hand path. 
The left-hand path is based upon the principle of isolate self-consciousness, the gift of set and its exploration. Exercise and maximization. It seeks to evolve the initiated human from self-aware animal to a god. This aspiration is not as preposterous as humans conditioned to faith, for it is a de facto religious faith. In their complete objective universe subjugation, docilely accepted. In fact, the reality is completely the opposite. Every individual exercise of will or free choice or discretion and above all of creation is a manifestation of the gift of set. Any thought, expression, or action which is not the product of OU stimulates, instincts, reflexes the gift. Human's failure to appreciate this phenomenon is partly the result of a masochistic self-indoctrination, but also the seemingly minimal impact of the gift against the intimidation, the vastness, and the omnipresence of the OU, and of course the relentless barrage of perceptions of personal identity only as the sum total of the OU, the bodily senses, and the 4D displacement boundaries of life. Without seeing it as initiation, self-maximizing individuals already defy their OU, out objective universe, prison conditioning, most obviously in the creative arts. Every Wagner opera, Clark Ashton Smith poem, Paul Kantner song, Jules Verne novel, expressionist film or painting strains, if not indeed, breaks the chains. The more extraordinary the violation to be sure, the more taxing the energy and concentration demanded of it. The inertia and gravity of the objective universe are strong and relentless, and the human body is their creature. Formal, formal, formal left-hand path initiation thus realizes that this same body is a chain, a prison cell. The gift cannot be completely free and omnipotent until the chain is broken, the cell physically escaped. Paradoxically and importantly, however, it is this very environment of an outside universe body that enables each set created mind star to become aware of its own power. The body provides a point of reference both in itself and externally for the mind star to use to discern what it is versus what it isn't. A fish who has known nothing but its ocean existence has no concept of water until it jumps into the air or has the misfortune of being caught. Left-hand path incarnates, whether artists or initiates, experience the exhilaration of the occasional jumps into the air. If they are seen to be th too threatening to conventionality, however, or as H.G. Wells ominously story told, sighted men in the country of the blind, they can expect to be caught fish and have their offended eyes put out. Each left-hand path adventurer walks a tightrope through this incarnation. Only upon successful transition to Nieder Zertet does he become free, 
not just of the universal prison, but of its prison guards. The challenge of the left-hand path initiation is therefore to extract the maximum utility from one's objective universe incarnation and not to abort it prematurely. Every exercise of one's presence through physical mechanism strengthens and refines self-definition. Equally emphatically, the many avenues the physical senses provide for communication and interaction with other forma of life and aesthetic appreciation of non-living phenomenon of vast beauty and utility must not be prematurely cast aside, whether from informality, impatience, or indolence. The universal ordeal exists for a very essential and vital reason, presumptively aborting it Preemptively aborting it is not a sin, but is a waste of a unique and invaluable learning opportunity. If the incarnate experience of the left-hand path artist or initiate is more demanding than that of his RHP counterpart, post-incarnation both magnifies and relieves this tension. The left-hand path Mindstar now finds itself in a medium completely of its own generation, a subjective universe, SU in which it is the finding meter. As daunting as this sounds, an emergent left-hand path Mindstar therefore faces the prospect of creating its own subjective universe, or even multiple subjective universes. It can also blend these with the objective universe of the natural Nichiru, or with the subjective universes of other left-hand path mind stars, including the form subjective universe, or set himself. The old physical incarnate constraints and energies of the objective universe no longer apply, except insofar as a mind star may elect to observe them or apply them. Thus, whereas a right-hand path mind star feels no inclination to ignore or violate the harmony of the natural Nichiru of his outside universe, a left-hand path mind star may elect to behave much the same for the most part, but reserving the discretion to veer off from it in a subjective universe ingenuity as inspiration occurs. There is no limit to the richness of an individually created subjective universe, of course, and it may have direction or purpose or be delightfully random. I can think of no better example of such a subjective universe as rendered in English other than Clark Ashton Smith's magnificent The Hashish Eater, readily available in both book and internet online formats. If you elect left-hand path transition to your personal divinity and immortality, this is very much the canvas that awaits you. Metamorphosis. The moment when the mind star discards the physical body, e.g. the physical death, is less agreed upon than most humans suppose. In 1981, a commissioner's conference in United States laws proposes a model state law entitled the Uniform Determination of Death Act. Since adopted by some, but not all states, it reads... An individual who has sustained either irreversible cessation of circulatory and respiratory functions 
or two, irreversible cessation of all functions of the entire brain, including the brainstem, is dead. A determination of death must be made in accordance with accepted medical standards. This suffices in the objective universe to discard bodies no longer in their use by their mind stars, but it is as unsubstantiated overreach of the objective universe's materialism to claim that the absence of brain electricity provides the obliteration of the mind, i.e. consciousness, which is shown herein as a field, not a physical mechanism. Mindstar argues this from the Egyptian metaphysical methodology of anamnesis, but for those humans still unfamiliar with and thus hesitant to rely upon, the materialism myth is easily refutable in conventional esoteric language as well. Brain activity isn't the same as thinking, feeling, and our seeing. No one has remotely shown how molecules acquire the qualities of the mind. It is impossible to construct a theory of the mind based on material objects that somehow become consciousness. When the brain lights up, its activity is like a radio, lighting up when music is played. It is an obvious fallacy to say that the radio is composed of music. What is being viewed is only a physical correlation, but not a direct cause. The mind-star brain separation can originate with either the lower function of the cot or the higher of the ob. The Cotalist This is the disconnection in which humans are common, if not consciously familiar. It is what is regarded as natural death, especially when the soul is believed either not to exist at all, atheism or agnosticism, are to exist in only a very vague, crude way, Judeo-Christianity, etc., mythology. Cotalepsy. The cot can cease to interact with, between the body and the other higher emanations of the body wears out, e.g., dies of natural causes, illness, or disease, or injury. But the most comfor- comfortable circumstances that transpire with peaceful unconsciousness are sleep. In more advanced civilized countries, it may be anticipated and eased further with palliative care and or drugs such as morphine. Catastrophe Sufficient damage to the body as an accident, war, or murder disrupts the functionality of the cot, such that the other emanations are also cast adrift, as well as sensing in their several avenues the traumatic shock and pain of the body. While these vanish upon disconnection, a return to mind-star cohesion of the non-cot emanations requires that much more concentration. While the body-attached cot may be temporarily or permanently incoherent depending upon the degree of physical damage. Absolution and more refined interrelationship between the mind-star and its indwelled body, the passive failure of the cot linkage to replaced by one deliberate disengagement is accomplished by the ab emanation. This may be approximated as the mind star asserting full control of the body and then retiring its activity in a single smooth disconnect. Absence A purely ab control transition achievable in some individuals of high initiation is illustrated by the secret of the golden flower. The ab issues violence to either the cot or the body. 
In the Lord of the Rings, J.R.R. Tolkien asserts that the capability is one of the privileges of the passing Atlantean race of the Numenar. Emphasis mine. At last, Aragon felt the approach of old age and knew that the span of his life days were drawing to an end, long though it had been. Then Aragon said to Arwen, At last, Lady Evenstar, fairest in this world and most beloved, my world is fading. Lo, we have gathered and we have spent, and now the time of payment draws near. Arwen knew well what he intended and long had foreseen it. Nevertheless, she was overborne by her grief. Would you then, Lord, leave your people that live by your word? Not before my time, he answered, for I will not go now, then I must soon go perforce. And Eldaron, our son, is a man full ripe for kingship. Then going to the house of the kings on the silent street, Aragon laid him down on the long bed prepared for him. Then he said farewell to Elderon and gave into his hands the winged crown of Gondor and the scepter of honor. Then all left him save Arwen, who stood to plead with him to stay for a while. She was not yet weary of her days, and thus she tasted the bitterness of the mortality that she had taken upon herself. Lady Andamel said Aragon, the hour is indeed hard, yet it has made, even in that day when we met under the white birches in the garden of Elrond, where none now walks, and on the hill of Siren Amroth, when we forsook both the shadow and the twilight, this doom was accepted. Take counsel with yourself, beloved, and ask whether you would indeed have me wait until I wither and fall from my high seat unmanned and witless. Nay, lady, I am the last of the new Monarions, and the latest king of the elder days. To me has been given not only a span thrice that of the men of the Middle Earth, but also the grace to go at my will and give back my gifts. Now, therefore, I will sleep. I speak no comfort to you, for there is naught for such pain within the circles of the world. The uttermost choice you before you to repent and go to the havens and bear away into the west the memory of our days together that shall be evergreen but never more than memory or else to abide the doom of men nay dear lord the choice is long over there is now no ship that would bear me hence and i must abide the doom of men whether i will or nil and loss in the silence but i say to you king of the numerinarions but not until now have I understood the tale of your people and their fall. As wicked fools I scorn them, but I pity them at last, for it is thus indeed as the Eldar say, the gift of the one to men it is better to receive. So it seems, he said, but let us not be overthrown by a final test. Who of old renounced the shadow and the ring? In sorrow we must go but not in despair. Behold, we are not bound forever to the circles of the world, and beyond them is more than memory. Farewell. He fell into sleep. As a devout Catholic whose Annan Liddell 
echoed John Milton's creation epic of God, Iru, and his angels, Anu. Tolkien could be expected to lament the big black sack doom of men that Aragon and Arwen had been assured waited. Both them as humans, what they didn't know had been revealed by King Agmar, formerly Alfarun's the Golden, to the wizard Palando the Blue at Baradar Dur in Mordor shortly before the siege of Minas Tirith, the Third Age. I often wonder, Blue Wizard, of how little of Numenor was known either to the Anar and Valinar or to the several races in the realms of Middle-earth. Had it been otherwise, the island might still be the waves of the Beligarch Day, nor Belerand itself broken. The men of Numenor had, in their three thousand of years, a culture grown beyond the men, elves, and dwarves, and other beings here, and indeed beyond the Valar and Amon themselves. Before you disbelieve, for I see that you would, remember that the elves, beautiful of form and immortal upon Arda as they may be, are yet thus bounded in their existence. As for the Valar, while they may be bend and hurt this world mightily, still dare they not but as allowed by ear Elevar to whose mindless changing surface they eternally enthralled saved only one. We, for I indeed, I am Numerion. Discover that our lives may be limited on this world, neither are bodies entwined with it as the elves or the dwarves. We men are not thus imprisoned to it, but by our will may continue beyond it through all dimensions and distances of the universe. Nor are our minds condemned never to venture beyond that river of Iru Elevatar, as are those of the Anner, save only one. Indeed, Blue Wizard, as you are of the mire, I speak here beyond your own ability to comprehend. But this you cannot understand is the gift and doom of men. And that is what Numenor learned. And that is why the Valor feared and destroyed. What Aragon did not know, therefore, was that within his earth mortal body burned the immortality, not just of the circles of the outside universe created by the Elevatar. the one and ordered by the natural Anur, but of the subjective universe creative gift of Milkar. True immortality. Further that in relinquishing her Quindy elven life force that the new Morian mankind's love, she had freed herself and her own mind star from its objective universe bounding and bondage continuation to the limitless being now before Aragon. And that's a good place to stop. And thank you all very much for this hour reading of Michael Aquino's Mind Star. This is our fifth hour of reading this incredible modern day initiatory masterpiece to the Temple of Set. Thank you very much for joining me on this adventure, as well as all the other adventures that you have joined me on. Go back and listen to this, make sense of it. But at the same time, stick around because we are going to be publishing every week our readings of Michael Aquino's 
trilogy, starting with the last, Mindstar, and working our way back. Next will be Find Far, and then Mind War. So thank you all very much. You've listened to Beyond Top Secret Texan. Read an hour of Michael Aquino's Mindstar. Namaste and shalom. Iron sharpens iron, a friend sharpens a friend. God bless you and your families. Peace out.